not on our, our worries and the stuff going on in our lives, but that woman, I don't know if you know the gospel story, but when she came in and was in the room with Jesus, was so overcome by what he had done for her that she began to weep and just sat at his feet and washed his feet with her tears. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a beautiful image of what it means to be a, a Christ follower? And so this morning, my hope for all of us is that our hearts would be renewed. And let's face it, some of us have had a tough week. And some of us have had a great week. This morning, my prayer was, God, I've had a really great week, and so I'm desperate. I'm desperate because I could live today as if I don't need you, and I know that I deeply do need you. And so whether you've had a great week or whether you've had a tough week, can we look to the sovereign God, that's today's topic, and can we ask him to move on us here today. Great God, we do just bow before you, Lord. Um, we're so thankful. <laughs> we are so frail. We are so messed up. We can worry so much and just get so distracted and so discouraged and just forget the big picture that you've come to earth and you've revealed yourself and you're incredible. So we do pray like we prayed last week, Maybe we should pray every week. Would you open the eyes of our heart? Would you help us to see you as you are? In the great name of Jesus, amen. Hey, good morning. My name's John, in case we haven't met. We are in uh, this series called Knowing God. We're in part six. We've covered a lot of ground so far. And so here's what we've talked about so far. If you can go to the next image, we've talked about God's holiness, that God is a holy God. We've talked about God's covenant. Jim shared that about a month ago. We've talked about God's love, and we looked at that as being a delight, a love that can delight in us. We looked at his goodness and his wildness. He is good, but he is out of the box, and today we're talking about God's sovereignty. This is my favorite topic. I could say that every week, actually, because I love just looking at God and, and talking about him, but this is a great topic. We could define it, most theologians would define it as God being in control. That's a pretty good definition to start with, that God is in control. That's a good short definition of what this actually means. But I want to ask you that. Can you go to the next image, Justin? Thank you. Like, do you live that way? Do you live as if God is really in control of your life? Do you pray that way? Do you act like God is really God and come to him like a son or a daughter of the great king and pray mighty prayers? Do you love that way? Like when we encounter friends and other people in life, do you love them as if God is present. God is working right here. So, you know, for me, this, this word is more than a word. I love the thought of God being sovereign. I love to call him sovereign Lord. It, this is not just a theological word. It's not just a def definition. It's a beautiful word to me. Because in the darkest moments of my life, in the most confusing, perplexing moments of my life, I feel like God has just shown up and said, I I've got this. That's my experiential definition of God being sovereign. 
So I haven't always lived and acted and loved and prayed as if God truly is sovereign. I want to tell you how I experienced this, how God taught me that he was sovereign. It's kind of a funny story, actually. So I went on a mission trip to Hungary years ago, went to Budapest, Hungary, and we did a lot of great things there. I found myself preaching in the middle of a street in Budapest one time. So I don't know if you can see that very clearly, but I'm down on the ground in the blue shirt holding a microphone. And there's a crowd of about, a small crowd of about 50 people on the periphery that are just listening to me talk about Jesus. And it was really a beautiful time. It it led to a lot of amazing encounters, like this next one. I sat on a step, that's young John, right there. I'm on the far right. (laughs) And these guys were Romanian, and they had found their way to Budapest, and I had just given them Bibles. And they were so amazed and so thankful that in their poverty and in their heart's hunger and searching, that somehow God had connected me with them and given them the scripture. Go to the next slide, please. Uh, young John, again, um, feel free to laugh, at least in your heart, at that. So uh, this is, we're about to do a baptism of a bunch of Hungarians, a bunch of atheists that have been converted. It was just a beautiful thing. We had so many funny, funny things that happened to us. Like whenever you go overseas and you do any mission work, there's just details that get dropped. Like we had no translators. So just think about that. We, we pay this money. We fly over an ocean. We're in this city. And the person leading the trip says, yeah, I forgot to get translators. It's like that kind of kills the trip, right? I mean, this is not a really good thing. And so we walked down this, uh, this dormitory bouncing a basketball, which led to a game of basketball with a bunch of Hungarians, which led to a man named Peter saying, sure, I will be your translator. So, uh, which led to an encounter in a bar where we were sitting in the bar and I'm sharing the good news of Jesus with a Hungarian and Peter, who's not a Christian, was translating for me up until the point that is when he looked at me and he said, John, I am so drunk. And I realized maybe we should stop. (laughs) This is just, we had to depend on a drunk translator when we were there. Yes, it was the very first God on tap. That's where I got the idea, right there. And I say all that to, when I was on the plane, on the way home, I had a friend of mine named Aziz come sit by me. And he just looked at me and he said, John, I, I don't think you believe in the sovereignty of God. And it's, I remember arrogantly laughing and thinking, you know, been at this a while, surely I do. And Aziz said, no, the way you pray and the way you feel stress and the way you, I don't, I don't think you believe in the sovereignty of God. Can I share some verses in the Bible with you? And, uh, and I remember as we opened up the words of scripture somewhere in those next few moments, maybe the second verse, maybe the third verse, uh, I was converted right there. It's like, okay, you're much, much bigger than I thought. I'd like you to turn to Daniel 4. If you have a Bible, if not, we have it on PowerPoint.
Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, uh, this is describing a king named Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. He had become insane. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. That is, a pagan king came to believe in the one God, Yahweh, the Lord God. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. That doesn't mean that you don't matter. It means your desire in contrast to God's desire. God is going to have his way. And God does according to his will among the host of heaven. We all believe that. We all believe that God does what God wants to do in heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, God does what God wants to do on earth, in our lives. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have, you, what have you done? Like God can't be stopped. When God sets out to do something, there's no getting in his way. God will simply do what he wants to do. And here as I sat on that plane listening to this verse, looking at this, I realized a couple of things. Number one, God is really, really big. And this story, this book, this Bible reveals things about how big God is. And the second thing was this. This is really dangerous. This is really controversial. It would be very easy for me to misunderstand this topic about God being sovereign and twisting something beautiful into something ugly. Let me give you an example. Two friends are standing together and a house in front of them catches on fire. They're looking at a burning house. Christian number one says God is sovereign as he stands watching the house burn. Christian number two looks at Christian number one with an odd look on his face. He's perplexed by his friend's passivity and he runs into the burning house to save the people within. Like what does it mean that God is sovereign? Does it mean we go passive? Or does it mean that we encounter God in the events of life? The burning house could be the world, could be our own lives, it could be our friends. Are we passive or do we move in? How do we understand God being sovereign? I want to give you four images. I want to give you four images of how people think about the sovereignty of God. The first is the watchmaker. I'm not going to spend much time here. This is the view of many people that think God began this world like a watch that he has wound up. He's designed it. He turned the watch on, and then he stepped back. God is not involved in our lives. That's the perspective of many people, that God began the world, but he's not involved. Uh, You could read any verse in the Bible and disprove that thought. The second is the cosmic puppeteer. Like God is so in in control of everything. And we're going to look at that God is in control of everything, that he even intervenes in our free will decisions. We're going to come to some sticky stuff that we've got to wade through. So is God a puppeteer? Are we just the puppet on his strings and God controls us? Is that how we understand 
God's sovereignty. A, a, a lot of Christians actually believe this. A lot of Christians have the perspective that God's going to do whatever God's going to do. And what they mean by that is God, because he's in control, we can just sit back and, and watch. We're puppets on a string. And this leads to an incredible passivity, doesn't it? I have a buddy of mine that uh, became a Christian the day before I did. Uh, my buddy Scott he called me the other day. I just have joy whenever Scott calls me. But because we came to know Jesus at the same time. Well, him one day older, so he makes me call him my elder. Um, so my elder Scott and I, long ago, we had this conversation as we, this is how we understood sovereignty. We thought God was in total control, and so when we would feel the need to change in some way, we'd just look at one another and say, well, you know, I can't change, and I never will. You know, I have no responsibility. That's not what sovereignty means. <coughs> sovereignty means that we can live as sons and daughters of the Most High King and walk through life knowing that God is going to show up in the circumstances of our life. Here's the third image, the, the chess game. So is that how you picture God's sovereignty? Like Jesus is on one side of the chess board and Satan is on the other side. So Satan brings evil into the world, but God's always one step ahead of him. Like you're not going to outplay Jesus. He's always got one move left. I think that there's a partial truth to that. There's, there's some beauty to that idea, but we're not pawns. And life is not a game. So the fourth uh, perspective is one that I don't hear very many Christians talk about, and that's God as a divine playwright. So let me tell this in story format. Imagine your, your best friend calls you up. God calls you up, and he's really excited and says, hey, come on over here. I wrote this play, and I want you to take a look at it. And he's so excited about the play he's written. And so you come over to God's house. You come over to your friend's house, and, and you read two of the acts of the four-act play. And it's, like, beautiful. This is, like, the best story you've ever seen written. And you, you tell him, this is just awesome. And God, the divine playwright then looks at you before you get to act three and four. He said, hey, I want you in my story. Like this is, we're going to have this play here immediately. And, and I, I want you, you're invited into this story. And you think, oh my goodness, I'm not even a good actor, but okay. And so you show up in episode one, act one of God's play you butcher your lines. You're a little nervous. You choke. You don't move into some scenes where you know you're supposed to do something different. And you look at the playwright, God the playwright, that's there in the audience, and he's smiling. And it's like, oh, wow, there's freedom. I just missed my lines, and everything's okay. And then you move into act two, and you realize that there's just this big blank spot, that everything is not planned out, everything is not foreordained, that you've kind of got to wing it here. 
and just live out what you think you ought to do. And again, you move into this as an actor on God's stage and God's story, and you look out and God, the divine playwright, is smiling. Then you reach Act 3. And in Act 3, you notice that this ominous mood music begins. And a dark shadow comes across the stage. And you notice out of the corner of your eye that there's this rogue actor that's moving onto the stage of God's story. And you notice as this act continues that evil is happening here on the stage. And you're wondering, did God write this? Did God intend this to happen? How is this rogue actor, evil, allowed onto the stage of God's story? And you're confused. And you look back to see the face of God, the divine playwright, and he's gone. He's not even there. And you realize you always had a little suspicion about him anyway. You liked him, but you weren't totally sure he was going to show up in your life. Next thing you know, God is actually on the stage, and your mind changes, and you realize this is Jesus entering human history, in case you're a little slow on this. You realize that the, the divine playwright has written himself into his own story, but the scene, this episode, this act three is still, it's brutal, and God is killed right on the stage and the curtain drops, and you're just weeping. It's like, how could you allow this to happen? And Act 4 begins. The curtain comes back up, and the music has changed. The lighting has changed, and you've realized the rogue actor is gone, and the other actors involved in the play are all centered around and celebrating God, the divine playwright, who entered into his own play, who is now alive once again. And so there's questions that we have when we look at God and the question of evil. There's questions that we're not going to answer, but we do know that God, the divine playwright, has entered into his own story through Jesus. Here's what I hope you get out of this, out of that little story. There's a difference between God being in control and God controlling everything. There's a difference between God being in control and controlling everything. When I delegate something to someone, I'm giving them authority to carry something out, and then I don't micromanage it. And the point is, God has given human beings, God entrusted human beings with this creation and with this world. He delegated authority. And that's scary because he gives human beings the right, the power to mess up his story. I want you to realize if we don't understand this, that God allows this to happen, it's easy to confuse God and the devil. And I want to say that again to make sure you catch that. If we're not crystal clear on God being good and in control but not controlling, then when evil enters your story, 
it will be easy and oh so tempting to look at the narrative, the play that you're involved in and confuse the rogue actor Satan with God the divine playwright. I asked a young woman that had gone through some difficulty and I asked her, what do you think of God in light of what you've been through? And she said, God is malicious. Because she was not clear on how sovereignty works. And it led to a season of bitterness until she could say, God is good again. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Perhaps we do not realize the problem, so to call it, of enabling finite free wills, that is us, human beings, to coexist with omnipotence. It seems to involve at every moment almost this sort of divine abdication. That is, it seems like God is not in control because he has empowered us to have some control through our free will decisions. All right, so what I want to do in the next few minutes is I want to walk you through a, a number of scriptures that were shared with me on the plane coming back from Hungary. So Psalm 115, verse 3. Psalm 115, verse 3 says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. God is not limited. He is carrying out his purposes, even in our broken story. Nothing can hold him back. Nothing can limit him. Any circumstance that you are ever in, there is a God who is sovereign, who is in control, ready to bring about good out of the evil or the hardship that you're encountering. Psalm or Proverbs 19, verse 21 Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Do you see how easy it would be to misinterpret this? That, okay, I've got some ideas, but God's will is always done. It could read that way. We could make a mistake by thinking that. We could look at God as being controlling. Instead, we can see instead that God moves into the circumstances of our life in order to bring about blessing. Did I share with you guys my Godspell story two weeks ago? Did I share that just recently? All right, I had to ask because I've had a, I had a senior moment, maybe my first senior moment this past week. So those of you that are in my life group know what it was because we were going around the room and saying uh, what our name was and uh, how many kids we have. I said, my name's John, and I have one wife, and I have three kids. And my wife looks at me and is like, you have four kids. It's like, oh, no. <laughs> Which one did I forget? I wasn't even, I don't even know. I don't know what happened. So allow me, if you've already heard this story before, to just take you back to about six months after I became a Christian. And at this point, I had been part of the in crowd, and now I had come to know Jesus, and I really was unsure of how the rest of the in crowd would respond to me loving Jesus. 
And so this little debate was going on in my heart. How do I live out my faith now? What do I do? And I had the opportunity to be involved in a play. I don't know. You probably didn't know that, that I'm an actor, but I am. Um, <laughs> I'm a terrible actor, actually. And uh, actually I actually had a singing part in the play, too, and I am a terrible singer, too. So, uh, so as we're uh, working on the play, the guy that is in charge, the playwright, assigns me a certain role. I'm to be a clown. Now, I just want you to imagine me for a minute in a clown makeup. It's just like, this is... I, no, I don't want this. This is horrible. This is the end of my life. And then as the play began, now I, I had prayed, God, do whatever, do whatever it takes to change me, to make me more like you. And so there on the opening night, as I'm dressed up like a clown, about to have a singing part, which will go horribly bad, as I'm thinking about this, in walks the in crowd, all of them. And there's this little moment that's hard to describe. I had read enough scripture to know God is sovereign, even though I didn't understand that fully. And there's this little, like, I looked up to the sky, and it's like, this is you, isn't it? It's like, you're doing something right now in my heart. And I realized in that moment, it's like, I care more about Jesus than I do being accepted by my in-crowd. What I just want you to see about that is that God can be involved into the intimate details of our lives in order to change that. And I've totally lost my place. Um, Proverbs 21.1. No, I skipped one. Uh, Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap. The lot, rolling dice. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, first of all, this is a proverb. It's a general rule. But you can see how easy it would be to look at this and say, God is a micromanager. God controls everything. And this is a bad place to go. I don't believe that's the intention of this verse. It means that God can show up in the small little random stuff like I just shared with you. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Again, is God a micromanager making everyone do what he wants? Or is this instead saying... God can move into a person's heart and change. Now, let me just share with you personally. About two months ago, I realized something's wrong with my heart. I was on the lanai, and I was talking with a friend of mine. And I noticed that my MO, my tendency, is to move into situations that are difficult and to have courage and just move into them. And I realized that there was a difficult situation that I was not moving into. And as I thought about that, I thought, there's just something wrong with my heart right now. I am, I'm wounded. There's something wrong. And the idea that God is the potter and I am the clay, that my heart is in God's hand 
and God can change my heart was incredibly beautiful and redemptive. God's not going to control my heart, but to know, Lord, change my heart. Help me love you more. Help me be more courageous. God's sovereignty over my heart was incredibly beautiful to me as I invited him into that. So here's what I've learned about God's sovereignty. Number one, I think this clears up what we've talked about. God's sovereignty can clear up our confusion about life. It can clear up our confusion when we go through hardships, and some of the people in this room are going through some really hard stuff. There's some life circumstances going on. Things like having children or not being able to or having a disease that you just found out about. Some really major things. And we could conclude, wrongly conclude, God is malicious. He's abandoned me. Why is this happening? Or we can say, because God is sovereign, God is good, He's in this circumstance. I don't know what he's doing, but he's present. The second thing is that this enables, if God is sovereign, this enables us to respond to the hardships of life in a specific way, in a certain way. James chapter 1 says this, Consider it all joy, my brothers. Consider it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And my question is, how do you know that? How do you know that responding to life with trust and joy, is going to change anything. The only way you can know that responding to life with joy is if God is in control of everything. If God is not in control of everything, if God is not sovereign, it doesn't really matter how you respond to life. But if this is true, if God is sovereign, any hardship that comes your way, you can respond in a certain way and say, God, what are you after in me? What are you after in me? And that makes us unstoppable. That can create a positivity in life that no matter what we go through, we know that God is good because we know that God is sovereign. Look, in, look at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. This is not only true of hardship, but it's true of temptation. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's funny. Like when we're tempted, I don't think most of us think about God being present like God's not present. I don't want God present. I'm really struggling here. And this verse, this scripture tells me every single circumstance, all the temptations that you and I face all the struggles that we have individually that God is extremely present and is right there to guide you out of that. The only way Paul could have written this was if he had a very, very big view of God. 
the way I like to say this is that God is under, over, in, before, and after every circumstance I will face in life. He is always present in everything that we go through. Third thing I think that we can draw from God's sovereignty is that God's sovereignty enables us to participate in God's good works. They're not our good works. They're not things that we need to create. We all know the world needs to see Christians engaged in good works, not so that we will gain our salvation, but so that we will live it out in such a way that people that don't know Jesus will look at us and go, now I get it. I shared this verse with us last week, but I just want to look at it again, Ephesians 2.10. We're his workmanship. We're his artistry. Your life is a canvas on which God is painting a beautiful image of trust and joy and surrender and hope. Your life is a canvas We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared. The good works that God wants us to walk in. God's sovereignty enables us to look at life and say, where can I do good? How can I bless? How can I help? There's a young lady who had a financial need here recently, and she needed a car. And some members of H2O took it on themselves to say, we want to step in, and we want to help you in such a way that your life is blessed. That's what it means to live as if your life is a canvas, to operate in doing good works to just bless everyone, but especially of the household of faith, is what Galatians tells us. But everyone, those in the house and those out of the house. The greatest example of what we're talking about here today, God being in control, when God appears out of control, is the cross, the cross of Christ. So I I want you to think about this for a minute. The followers of Jesus did not see the cross coming. They did not understand that Jesus was going to die for the sins of the world. They believed he was the son of God and that the nation of Israel would soon follow him and proclaim him as king And it would be a great day, and it would just be awesome, and they knew it was coming. They knew the kingdom of God was about to appear on earth. That's why two of his disciples pulled Jesus aside and asked for positions of honor there in the kingdom. They knew this is about to happen. And his arrest and his being scourged, being beaten to within seconds of his death, caught them totally off guard. And it looked like God was not in control at all. That darkness was winning. 
And then it was only after the resurrection of Jesus that the Christ followers could look at this topic that we're talking about today, look at God's sovereignty and see how big God actually is. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 23 says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So how do we understand this? How do we understand how sovereignty works? Judas made a free will decision to hand Jesus over. The Romans made a free will decision to torture Jesus in a certain way. The Jews made a free will decision to hire Judas. But behind all of that was the divine playwright who saw that was coming, saw what was coming, and brought ultimate good out of that which was evil. Acts chapter 4. You know, the, it's funny, Jim mentioned the Cleveland Browns. Maybe the main point of this talk is that we can have a confidence like the Cleveland Browns. So, I want this image to be just kind of stuck in your head. Two years ago, the Browns were... 1 in 15, yikes, the laughing stock. Of, just curious, how many people are Browns fans? All right, we have a whopping, Jim, are you raising your hand or not? Okay, okay, all right, there's a minority of us. So the Browns are 1 in 15 two years ago. That was a good season. Last year, they were 0 in 16. That was bad. Things are going downhill. Then they draft this guy, and like Jim said, it had been how many days? 635 days without a victory. But they drafted Baker Mayfield, and suddenly the feeling around the Browns changed. Bud Light put what they called victory fridges all around the city of Cleveland with a chain on it, with the intention that when we win, we're unlocking this fridge. Do you see this? It's like there's this great expectation because of Baker Mayfield. And if we connect this talk about the sovereignty of God, we don't have Baker Mayfield, we have Jesus. And what kind of expectation do you live with, knowing that God is sovereign, what kind of expectation do you have that God is going to triumph in my life? God is going to triumph over my struggles. God is going to triumph in H2O and do some really cool things with us. So Acts chapter 4 re records the Christians coming together to pray after their leaders had been arrested. Now, I, I don't think Jim and Steve and I 
uh, are about to get arrested, but that was the context. Their leaders were arrested. And I want you to read what they prayed in Acts chapter 4. Their leaders had been released from prison. It says this, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices to God and said, Sovereign Lord, take note of that, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain, the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now look, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And all that to say, if God is sovereign, nothing in heaven or hell can stop God's mighty purposes. For people, for churches, for nations, God is sovereign, God is on the move. And our part is to engage with God and say, here I am and let's go. Would you stand with me as we move into worship? in our head, but we want it to be something that beats in our heart and moves us forward into love, into praying with confidence, into showing up. We don't want to be people that say God is sovereign as the house burns. We want to be people that move into the house, situations of hurting people, struggles and temptations and hardships of life. We want to move into all of that, fully engaged with life because we are fully engaged with the God who is sovereign. So we declare that to you. We declare that our God is sovereign. And now we move our hearts to a place of worship. We move our hearts to a place of giving you thanks and just singing back to you how great you are, how good you are. We are right in the middle of your holiness and your goodness and your wildness and your sovereignty. We're right there in the middle. And so we sing back to you this morning. In the great name of Jesus, amen. <laughs> 